Welcome to the Ides of Macro, where we discuss investing, trading, and big picture frameworks, all through the lens of global macroeconomics. This is the bit where I remind you that none of this podcast is investment advice. In fact, this is purely for entertainment and educational purposes. But please do hit that subscribe button if you want the latest videos from Lycan as soon as they're available. And with that, let's get on with the podcast. Welcome, everybody, to the Ides of Macro, where we look at both the economy and the financial markets from a top-down macro perspective. And this week, it's my absolute pleasure to have Samantha Leduc on of us of LeducTrading.com, and that's Leduc. D-U-C, not D-U-K. Samantha, absolutely fantastic to have you on. I'm thrilled to be here, Roger. Thank you so much. And um, I'd love to just understand, before we kick off about markets, which is I know what people really care about and trading them, but just a little bit about your journey for those who don't know you, because you're on Twitter, you've got your website or it's being built, etc. But how do you get to where you are in, in this kind of this journey into markets? I'm very curious. <laughs> I am uh, I'm, I'm known for market timing, so I like to translate kind of macro event risk and follow institutional money flow, um, use kind of international intermarket analysis, which is kind of cross asset um, comparison and contrasting to find macro trends, sector rotation, and of course, uh, directional market moves. So I actually uh, serve uh, three masters as it relates to clients uh, from the macro driven to the macro to micro. They're kind of more interested in uh, equities, particularly um, trend portfolio, swing portfolio, and chase time frame, which is, of course, a lot of fun, which is why I run a, a live trading room. But uh, they're very different types of uh, active traders and investors. And I try to serve, as I mentioned, kind of all three, but I also have a trading desk of nine contributors uh, to support that whole effort. So I happen to be the lead. Um, <laughs> and I, I'm very, very focused on macro trends, which is why we're talking, but then translating that into tradable sector rotation and durable stock trading themes. And how did you get into the, the flow things? Because flows, you know, coming, if you come from an institutional buy or sell side, flows is very much kind of uh, one of those key elements. And people often forget, I think, but it's, I think Paul Tudor Jones has said, basically, you follow the money, follow the flows. How did you get into that? Because most people don't really kind of get into that until they're either told to or they get, get quite sort of developed within this market. Uh, again, that curiosity, I just, it does not satisfy me to just be a, a technical analyst. I use macro analysis as a backdrop to kind of identify inflection points in policies. And like I said, my real secret sauce is kind of overlaying it with intermarket analysis to predict when outliers will revert across assets. But then I use that kind of institutional money flow, which is a combination of anticipating what the motivation is behind the institution, where they're going to press long, press short with quant, which is quantitative um, analytics and looking at the actual net buying and net selling that can trigger uh, more 
uh, the, the kind of price insensitive uh, levels within an options market, it's all tied together because the mar the options market is absolutely important to manage as it relates to flows because of this one single line called gamma. And when we're in negative gamma or positive gamma, it begets the buying and selling behavior. So I like to follow from a micro level, those gamma levels to a macro level, the institutional flow. And all of that is very quantifiable, but, but that's separate from, you know, translating that kind of macro event, um, backdrop and then trying to put it all together with pattern recognition, technical analysis, uh, is sentiment. So I like the fact that there are multiple modalities and I try to scan and synthesize what's happening. Um, across all of that and put it together and kind of form a story so that the, the, the dots I can connect are basically just telling a story and then I can predict where the plot is going based on that. So it's market timing in a nutshell. It sounds like you've got sort of a maybe a, a sort of mathematical background there, an engineering background, because you're obviously looking at the that sort of statistical element as well as the sort of, you know, what I always call from my angle, the finger in the air, hope for the best type element. But it sounds like you've got a kind of a quant framework going on as a key part of your 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 modeling. No, I think it's more patterns. I think patterns are something that um, we have a predictive brain and most of us are looking at patterns in people. Um, I'm looking at the price action and the storytelling of narratives and whether to trust it or not. And then look at it literally, um, cause there are a lot of narratives that are, uh, taken either at face value, um, that maybe need to be vetted a little bit more. And I like that. Um, I like to be kind of, uh, not, not contrarian, but skeptical. <laughs> I like to take the bull and the bear case on everything. I want to be able to argue both sides eloquently so that I can kind of weigh the evidence to see which is most important at that particular time. And then I can identify what risks are coming in. Um, and that's what I really, really like to do is identify when we're going to have volatility enter the market uh, as a way to kind of uh, keep my clients safe. And yeah, I mean, narrative, I, I agree, totally agree. Narratives are, are so important. I think we can actually probably use that as our segue into uh, really discussing what's going on today, because this has been a, um, you know, the last two years have seen these very, very sort of tribal competing narratives where it's been, oh, immediate recession, the world's going to end to actually, no, we'll, we'll come through it. And here we are pretty much coming towards the end of 2023. And none of this has been resolved. There is still that whole question of, it's going to be a recession or actually, no, we're not going to get a recession. Which narrative do you think um, is the most credible here? Because they're all plausible. In fact, no, not credible. Which do you think is the most plausible? Because I think there's a lot of competing narratives, but none of them can be discounted. Which narrative do you think is for you the most pl plausible at the moment? So it is basically the same theme I had three years ago. And let me uh, flesh, you know, unpack that a little bit more. When we had post-COVID lockdown and then the reopen with a massive stimulus, both fiscal and monetary, right? Markets loved that. And obviously, um, that was a, a liquidity infusion of, uh, of, of all time. And we had a massive, massive rally, but we also were helped by, you know, the, the, the policies that were expected to come in under the blue wave. So back in no November of 2020, a lot of things shifted during 
that summer of 2020. Um, I had a call in August that bonds were done going up. So it was basically this whole thesis that interest rates were done going down. With that, I made this call that things over paper would now matter. Really, really important because the bonds that were obviously I expected to come down were not going to be just a short duration pullback. It was going to be a breakdown of that 40-year channel. So I've been a huge bond bear and I still am, by the way. So <laughs> even if Ackman has covered, you know, his shorts. Yeah. <laughs> this, is, this, is this, is, this is an interesting juncture. Because we had this, you know, this, we got to what, 5%, let's say, on the 10 year, and then we had this sort of almost 50 basis point or 50 basis point pullback. So do you think that this is just everyone getting a little bit overexcited because the Fed said that great word of maybe pause and everyone thinks, well, that's your pivot and you're done? Do you still think that this therefore is, you know, do you see yields, let's say 10 year yields, breaking those 5% highs going 55 to 6%? So kind of beyond maybe where the 30 year yield is at the moment? Yes, in time, but maybe not for the next six months. So, for example, this was really not just Fed. Fed, you know, it absolutely intonated pause. And I absolutely have been calling that since the March um, bank backstop, right? When they came in to make sure that uh, banks felt supported and uh, customers didn't do a bit more, you know, further damage in bank runs by uh, backstopping their unrealized treasury losses. So move forward. We have been moving out of that rate hiking regime, stepping down, stepping down until yes, last Wednesday, November 1st, FOMC meeting, you know, they intonated a pause that definitely, you know, helps ignite the animal spirits, so to speak. But it was especially the quarterly refunding announcement by Yellen. Right now, fiscal absolutely is much more powerful than the Fed narrative, Fed head speaks, even Powell. So the fiscal deficit, which, as you know, has doubled in the past year, I mean, this is a growing concern and it's not going away, is the reason for the season with the bond issuance of size that came out on July 31st. And on Fortunately, people didn't realize that that was so important, <laughs> but it was key and it caused the markets to roll over promptly on August 1st as the dollar and 10-year yield in particular started grinding higher over three months, over three months. So all of August, September and October were bearish and it was all because of that massive treasury issuance that came out on July 31st. So bonds, obviously, uh, longer term, are very, very important um, as that supply and you know demand component of um, our yields. So yields have only recently come down, causing the animal spirits to get all excited again because July, excuse me, um, uh, November 1st, Yellen came out and did something in the the, the quarterly refining, uh, uh, refunding announcement that made the, the, the emphasis on T-bills and coupons lower than we thought, which was short-term bullish, versus funding the fiscal at a higher you know, cost using bonds. So it basically did this refinancing in the short term by adding liquidity versus the longer-term bearish reality where it will pull liquidity out. So she basically kicked the can. And and with that, some well-known bond bears threw in the towel, right? Ackman said, I'm covering, and, and a few others. And that also triggered, getting back to the quants, um, and the price-insensitive buyers, the CTAs. And their bond buying, their equity buying was just in fugo. It was basically what helped ignite 
um, this very sharp rally last week. We're air, you know, we're, we're doing this interview on the 9th of November, but last week was the largest uh, equity bounce that we've had all year and the largest in three years. It's also an anomaly that we've had nine straight days of gains in NASDAQ 100. So we're getting to a point of exhaustion where we're going to kind of test that inflection point again. But yes, big picture, I'm still long-term bearish on uh, longer-term bonds, but we are having an oversold bounce right now, and uh, that is helping stocks and bonds to stabilize. And do you think this is, you know, part of the problem is that every time you get a, a major Fed member saying, OK, pause or pivot or whatever, we get this pullback in yields and we get these almighty rally in equities. And the problem with that, it seems, is that more equities are going to rally. Well, when I say problem, I mean, equities rallying is generally good, but corporates sort of do their, their employment from the success of the equity market as much as anything else, financialization. Rallying equities and corporates that are going to continue hoarding jobs ultimately increases, I guess, and to your point, the, the risk of, of an inflationary bounce in the next 12 to 24 months. Yes. And actually, if you really want to kill inflation, you actually need a little bit more pain in the equity market and certainly in the economy. So do you think that actually, you know, we, what we wish for is actually a bad thing because we get our bounce, but actually probably means a higher chance of a rebound in inflation? Absolutely. Now, we might need to t see this bounce play out for, in, especially in um, bonds. They were, you know, the 10-year, for example, um, was very oversold. We could have a bounce that lasts, you know, a good three months, maybe more. But we're still not done uh, selling off because the issuance that we just had announced is going to be even greater in Q4. And the issuance in Q1 of 2024 is going to be greater then Q4 2022. So it's not getting, uh, we're not going anywhere fast <laughs> with, a, with a backdrop um, of meeting Fed's, you know, mandate of 2%. The only thing that is really going to help is fiscal constraint. And that's just uh, not really in the cards. So we're going to, we're going to keep playing this game of uh, basically rolling over. Bond prices will absolutely show their hand um, in the next, you know, especially as recession is pulled forward uh, after that, after that bounce has proven itself exhausted, just like the equities bounce that we're seeing right now. And, and that, in some ways, is that this kind of this part of that tribal battle is this thing between your know, issuance and you know inflationary risks still out there because obviously it looks like we're we're basing at a much higher level than the two percent versus that risk of recession and. Yes, you know, maybe we don't get the same pullback in yields in the next recession when it happens that we've been used to over the last 20 or 30 years. But where do you see that happening? Because people out there will be saying, look, you know, we are seeing an uptick in unemployment to the point where we're, we're breaking the sort of moving averages, which suggests that we now get a concerted move up in unemployment. Therefore, we are going to get a recession and yields nearly always fall either through or um, after a recession. But do you think that offsetting that, because there's a lot of people say, ah, oh, but we're more like emerging markets now. And therefore, yes, we might get a recession, but we won't get that pullback in yields and the rally in bonds that we've been used to because of this pretty hideous fiscal position where we're starting from a point where we've got to issue more bonds if we're having to fund a proper recession. How do you see that balancing out? Because do you feel that we get this pullback now in yields, then yields go back up, creating the recession? Or do you think we're actually moving into the recession sort of in the next quarter, maybe two quarters? I do um, finally see that happening. But to answer the kind of the, uh, um, the recession question, 
uh, let me just kind of uh, focus on uh, wage inflation because this has helped delay recession. And I'm going to tie this into bonds. Just kind of hear me out. <laughs> so uh, back uh, basically in October of 2021, I had this this long written, you know, diatribe or post for clients, which was deflation of wages ended with COVID. Okay, this is October 2021. Um, inflation was sticky. I have obviously been very focused on this things over paper. Inflation is sticky. Oil is inflation hedge, um, you know, solid bond bear. And none of that has changed, by the way. So what we're talking is a trend backdrop versus, you know, how to play these equity swings, uh, both long and short. And what triggers them is almost always dollar and yields. The stronger they are, the bigger the headwind to equity and equities and vice versa. So right now we're in a pullback with both dollar and yields and we have a very strong equity uh, impulse higher. Okay, so that's just a swing time frame, kind of counter trend, let's put it that way. But going back to kind of deflation of wages ended with COVID in that whole post, I made this claim at the end, which was, this was the enemy of bonds. I showed a 30-year treasury bond chart that had been in a 40-year long channel. And it was forming a very you know popular trend reversal pattern known as the head and shoulders. If you put it on a monthly, you can clearly see it. One And I literally wrote, once this channel breaks, we will know inflation is more than transitory or sticky. It will be clear inflation is systemic because bonds will begin their descent. At that point, the rate of change in that bond break will matter to volatility and to market returns. So I go on and basically say the market tell will be when bonds sell off with stocks. That's important. That's really important. This was October 2021 before the 2022 pullback. The market tell will be when bonds sell off with stocks in the midst of rising energy and commodity prices. This could be very destabilizing to markets and economies worldwide as the risk parity trade is unwound in favor of cash. So that was my last sentence of that post. I stand by it. Risk parity died with COVID. So we had not just one, not just two, but I contend we will have three years of negative you know, long-term bond returns. And that was my baseline bet. So we pulled back in 2022. This at the time was my my thesis that wages would also continue higher and they would outrun productivity. And then they would play catch up to inflation because for 20 and 21, wage growth was not outpacing inflation. Inflation was, you know, eating <laughs> up any wage growth. Yes. Then in 2022 and 23, guess what? Wage growth outran inflation. So now we have the unions with their bargaining power and we, you know, the, the whole thing. We see what has happened in the, in the past year, especially, right? With increased wages. So now looking ahead, so I, I did a follow-up. My follow-up was literally this year in July to clients and the whole, and the title was, wage inflation delayed recession. So, so far we've already had 2021, wage inflation could not be inflation. And then 22, 23, it did. Now what happens? This is very important because that's what's gonna trigger or pull forward, not just the recession risk, but tip us over. And I don't think that's gonna come until you know next year. I don't know which quarter, but that's definitely, definitely the plan for the next two years, 2024, 2025. I can definitely see this tipping us into recession and 
I know it's shocking, but I don't see bonds getting bought. I see panic buying of short duration, and then they roll over again. And I think at the same time that recession comes forward is a headwind for equities. It is still a backdrop of higher yields. The very, very big difference is that I see dollar grinding lower. So do you want to unpack that? <laughs> mm, I do. I'm going to just come on to a couple of things first, because it sounds like what you're looking at here is um, when we look at bond yields, um, during the period of moderation, which was the monetary period, bond yields tended to peak before the recession then roll over. But in the 1970s, the inflationary period, they didn't tended to peak within the recession and roll over either mid-recession or actually after the recession, almost every recessionary period. So it sounds like that's more, more the more realistic one, which is sticky wage inflation, high yields, probably another rebound in, in yields. So going breaking five, maybe five and a half, six. Probably the Fed may not be done because they will eventually have to probably break this inflation by at least talking a harder game again, unless obviously those 10 year yields do the work for them. So that's that sounds like the, the sort of almost like a classic 1970s style inflation scenario. When you're talking about the um, the dollar, is it that you're talking about the dollar rolling over after you've had that peak in inflation? Or do you see there being a coincident move? I that last leg in yields going higher is a recessionary environment in that recessionary environment, maybe after a little bit of a flight to safety the US becomes less attractive than other regions because it's going into a proper recession. Is it that sort of thing? Because I'd love to understand your sequencing to those yields and then into that dollar position. Yes, I think you summarized it perfectly. So the 1974 analog works really well, but yes, the 1970s. And it's actually something also in May of 2021, um, I was writing about the waves of inflation peaks and equity bottoms. So we've obviously uh, pulled back very solidly in, you know, headline CPI from, you know, last year into this one. Now we're kind of basing um, and starting to move higher. But the point is, it isn't just inflation or inflation expectations in the short duration. It's entrenched because if you zoom out and look at a 10-year, you know, chart on any of the inflation metrics, prices and, and uh, beyond, we're still well above trend after all of this infusion, right, of loose monetary policy um, in the summer of 2020, in literally March. So, and and all of that fiscal spending um, as well. So we don't have, um, for me anyway, a backdrop of inflation uh, done going down, number one. And we definitely have a, a very different situation where fiscal constraint restraint is not in the house so it weakens the US dollar right and it threatens the bond bounce in other words this this falling dollar softer yield right now that we're having is is a nice strong tailwind for equities but as rates fall especially with the fed rate cuts starting to surge again in other words they're being priced in they're being pulled forward etc. Demand for the US dollar and US treasuries will fall together. And this will be negative for risk assets. That's very different than kind of like the the great financial crisis time or, or other kind of credit events, credit crisis events, which created this rotation spike into US dollars. I think it's going to be different this time. I think it's pretty obvious that Foreigners are more reluctant to finance America's fiscal deficits. They have absolutely recorded uh, their treasury holdings 
that have declined year over year and strongly. Not just, you know, China and Japan, where emphasis um, should be <laughs> um, highlighted, but but globally. And it's also a related reason for the decline in the U.S. dollar's share of foreign exchange reserves. That has been falling. So I really think that this is a situation where <clears throat> it's not going to force the U.S. dollar crowded longs um, in an, a credit event. I think because of this whole new regime of kind of quasi-fiscal deficits under the mechanism of fiscal dominance. You know, you have, and none of that, by the way, is allowed to be priced into the market because they have tricks to prevent that. You know, U.S. dollar swaps to make equities stay, you know, levitated, um, Fed intonating pause, Yellen issuing bonds later and bills earlier and all types of mechanisms that help, but there are fewer and fewer of them now and they have diminishing rate of return. Case in point, October, September, October of 2022, we had a massive central bank intervention that was global. It was predicated, it seemed, on the guilt blowout, but actually it was Bank of Japan and they did an unscheduled, unauthorized yen intervention, the largest of 24 years. That wasn't talked about. It was Liz Truss's, you know, political um, acts. But the point is, all of this triggered in September and October a global coordinated intervention. Matt King of Citibank later labeled that as $1.5 trillion of liquidity that was infused to help stocks and bonds from falling further. That's the kind of intervention we have. That's the, the reason for the season that, that the mega cap tech plays, otherwise known as Magnificent Seven, have such concentration risk and the rest of the market underneath is either flat year to date or negative. So that's not really a risk on type of move. That is a risk off. It's like we're going to go where the cash is rich, the moat is wide, they have a monopoly. <laughs> so <clears throat> we're going to we're going to trade big think, tech. But that's not sustainable. Break, the point is, my, that's not sustainable. No, and to to break that because this this has been the fascinating thing is that it's got narrower and narrower. And if you look at it, the the market has actually been pretty atrocious when you look at it um, through the sort of widest lens that you can have. And, you know, with looking at this, it sounds like the sequencing is that first we get this consolidation of yields, lower yields, and that Pavlovian conditioning we've seen is that if yields come down, everyone goes high quality tech stocks, which have got, yeah, which have got very little debt. And, you know, the yes. cash piles have been also helping them. What's, is, it, is it that that next move higher in yields breaks? Because what also seems to have happened, particularly since, um, particularly since the banking crisis in March, is that we have seen yields go up. But we've also seen tech stocks go up, which we didn't see throughout the previous sort of 12 months plus, because suddenly everyone went, oh, those top end ones, they benefit when yields go down because yields going down is good for tech companies, they're growth companies. But also when yields go up or interest rates go up, those top ones, which are rich in cash and low in debt, yes. it's good for their cash balances. So how do you break that? You know, it's not damn, it's like great if, if you do that, great if rates go down and great if rates go up. What finally breaks that um, monopoly of those sort of top seven, because to me it feels like you actually need a proper full-on regime change um, to actually go, okay, we're now going to get out of those stocks. At the moment, it seems people are still in that kind of, we like both, both sides of that argument. I couldn't disagree. I would just kind of clarify that I think the, the, the good news right now of the, the consumer spending uh, and 
wage inflation, right, helping to delay recession basically through that consumption um, and corporations maintaining, uh, you know, their, their margins. It's tight margin control, but it's on declining revenues, right? This is a big deal. It's much, much better to have um, companies uh, beating on, um, you know, rising revenues. But the point is the, the wage inflation, all that U.S. government spending is stimulus, um, all the current kind of, uh, of, 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 of creative, very, very strong strategies by corporations to stay in the game and, and also reduce, you know, they, they refinanced the lows in 2020. All of this growth mantra will just through time peter out. Corporate revenues and margins will slow from all of it, from falling demand from of, of U.S. dollar, of U.S. treasuries, because the market is basically right now saying we don't trust that the fiscal uh, side of the house is going to get its its house in order. We're, we, as U.S. Treasury holders, want to be compensated for the fall of money. The market doesn't see that yet. The market just says we're going to chase these equity valuations into 1999, you know, kind of fervor if we have to, because we don't trust long duration bonds by the U.S. government. So that's a, a, an, um, an exercise right now that I'm watching very, very closely because we're at an inflection point where we literally will start to go parabolic uh, in the NASDAQ if this doesn't trigger some common sense, basically, some uh, sideways distribution and then a proper pullback to reprice equities because U.S. Treasuries are not compensating for the fall of money, kind of, that's the, the emphasis here. The dollar is not going to um, be that risk off haven. We're going to get to a point where the, the Treasury QRA will matter again. We've got one at the end of the quarter. Bond auctions can disappoint. And we saw that very sharp um, pullback in, um, in, in Treasury auctions when they are had. CPI still being hot will be market moving. So we're going to have kind of like individual um, macro events. But I think the biggest one is yet to be had. And that's Bank of Japan. And so, so with Bank of Japan, actually, I'm going to come on to Bank of Japan because you're right. I mean, it's uh, the importance of Japan, Japanese investors on the global global sort of scale, is, as it were, is is immense. Um, but just on that sequencing, because it sounds like this is a slightly longer term plan in terms of, let's say, the bear market. Because what, again, if we talk about recency bias, we've been so used to markets selling off and rebounding within months because of the policy reaction. And you know, you talk, you're talking about things like volatility. Volatility has in some ways been maybe, and equity volatility has been relatively subdued, particularly in the sell-off of 2022, because we've seen structured products have been selling volatility and using these high yields to create these double-digit returns. Do you feel that the market is therefore, you know, coming to that Minsky moment, which is, it looks really calm, sort of on the surface, relatively, given we, you know, we're not that far off the all-time highs, we've had this big rally. Um, but actually below the surface, that the fact that we've only got a few stocks doing well, we've got this inflation which is not yet tamed. We've probably got a big crowding into this yield hunt and volatility sort of selling. That when this actually turns, when we get maybe the bell being rung by those high yields or maybe the Fed being more aggressive, that this could be a longer sort of downturn than we've been used to. 
in terms of that that period and, and the way that we you know we've been used to stocks rebounding, but they might not come back as quickly as you think. Are you talking about for the 2024 kind of mantra of what is going to be the yeah. investment thesis? I think it's going to surprise again. Um, so in yeah. other words, when I came into that kind of fall of 2021 and I made my you know public pronouncement, I really felt very, very convicted that the 13-year outperformance of NASDAQ would end. So we had a 20% pullback in 2022 with SPY. We had a 35% uh, with NASDAQ, we had, you know, bonds sell off as well. So all of that came together. When we came into 2023, I said, I don't know. I said, it's an if then. I, I, you know, I can see we correct sideways in time more than price. It's unattractive risk reward. We're paid to wait, right? In high yielding T-bills and, and money market and such. So I didn't really have an edge for where we're going to go um, as it relates to kind of year end for 2023. 2024, I'm, I'm forming a thesis. And I think we're going to surprise. I think we're going to have lower stocks, bonds, and dollar. So to get there, to get there, and it is a sequencing of events, like you said. Right now, we're in a, you know, we're in a in a a, a bounce hard mode after the November first FOMC, you know, intonated a pause, and Yellen kicked the can in the big big, you know, bond um, issuance. So. What we're what, exactly as you said, we're kind of looking for some exogenous event. Otherwise, we're going to kind of chop about and just in my definition, um, have swaths of volatility that get sold because VIX is just this beautiful suppression engine for the powers that be to keep the market levitated. So we have to have some macro event that causes the flows to trip negative until then. You know how this works. It, VIX is sold, not bought. So until we have a macro event, uh, flows will trump macro. So I'm, that's why I'm looking at the Bank of Japan. I think it'll help. I was going to say, so does that bring us into the, the macro event? So Bank of Japan, um, I'm guessing that what you're thinking there is that the Bank of Japan is going to go. This experiment we've been doing for the last 10 years, well, you could say since 1989, but particularly since Abenomics in 2012, do you think that's going to change? All I can do is look at it as a as a threat and a very viable threat. So we know that Bank of Japan's Yuida is in a tight spot, right? He if he stands pot pot on policy, uh, they risk sending the end to a, another multi-decade low and opening up yield control program to all kinds of kind of speculative attacks in the market. At the same time. Um, if they raise the ceiling on that 10-year JGB um, under yield control, whether like explicitly or implicitly, because they play those games a lot, they can invite long-term rates to rise to levels that are very inconsistent, <laughs> let's put it that way, with their economic fundamentals. And that would jeopardize you know, the, the goals of achieving, quote-unquote, stable inflation, not to mention his job. So it's a difficult decision. Each round of bond buying that they do now offers up diminishing returns. And that's calling into question the whole like viability of the bank's uh, easing program altogether. So is there going to be an announcement to the end of negative rate policy? I think in a nutshell, that's basically, you know, what we're all uh, de not debating, but um, it's an intellectual debate <laughs> right now um, because the Bank of Japan experiment is, like you said, 30 years um, old. They have not really shown strong signs 
of, uh, you know, when they're going to announce it because it is a big uh, disruptor on the global stage. Um, some have said just recently, in fact, yesterday, um, you know, there was a, a mention of um, a potential pivot from a former um, Japan board, a Bank of Japan uh, board member uh, who said this January. So they're kind of like, they're, it's a trial balloon. They're trying to see what's going to happen. But Bank of Japan is allowing uh, right now their U.S. treasuries to mature, hold to maturity, you know, off the books, out, you know, and in some cases outright selling them. And they're using the U.S. dollar to buy and stabilize the yen. So why it matters is, you know, Japan is still the largest holder of U.S. treasuries. Um, you know, China collectively with real estate and treasuries and equities is probably larger. But for the point of U.S. treasuries, they hold over $1.1 trillion worth of debt. So it matters when they sell because it puts upward pressure on our longer duration yields, which is a headwind to equities. So it's all related. And I think the, the you know, oh, how do you put it? Uh, it until they relent. They allow these, you know, JGBs to trade at true, truly market-driven prices, which has not been allowed to happen. This situation that's happening right now is only going to get worse. They're, they're, uh, and that continues to add pressure to our U.S. 10-year. So here's it in a nutshell. 21 to 23, 20,021, through 22, through 23, were the years when yen had an incredible bear market due to yield curve control, right? It happened to take place during the fastest Fed hiking cycle in history. Now, what happens to U.S. bonds and equities if the opposite occurs or if this unwinds over the next two to three years? If they reverse their negative rates and pivot, there could be an exit from the dollar to the yen. And that is what would be very disruptive to U.S. equities and bonds and dollar. So it kind of brings me yeah. back to that opening line that I think U.S. dollar has, has likely peaked. And I think we'll see it fall further next year. I mean, it's, it's the... Um, this policy tightrope, I mean, it's for, for a lot of not just you know, Japan and the U.S., but... It, pretty much all the major regions is such a difficult one because, you know, in Japan, you've got um, effectively the, the yield curve control buying bonds is effectively diluting the currency, takes dollar yen to 150. And then the Ministry of Finance comes in and starts doing the opposite, which is basically selling the dollar and buying the yen. So they've got two arms two two well, two parts of the system, one selling, one buying. But I guess it's been the same in the fiscal versus the monetary and, and you know, the bond buying that they've been doing anyway has been that that way. It's I guess the hard thing here is how on earth do you or how does anyone trade this? Because as you mentioned before, I think with the Nasdaq and I think with, even with dollar yen is that you could plausibly, you know, and I hate being tribal, but plausibly, we could see dollar yen spike suddenly through 150 dollar strength that then forces the hand. Or we could see the Nasdaq have one of those 99 surges before it rolls over. Yes. And so many people I talk to say, go, God, I'm, you know, I'm bearish, but I'm bearish but I'm worried that I'm going to miss this almighty move to the upside in the, those FANG stocks taking you know, the NASDAQ back through the highs. How do you think of that when you have these scenarios where, you know, you could be sequencing wise, you could be absolutely right over 12 months, but over the next three months, we could all be carted out of the market. 
and not live to fight another day unless we're very careful in how we do it. How are you approaching this? Because I think you know, thinking about how you're trading this would be very useful for people to hear. Well, I have three time frames and they are very different, right? So if I, since I run a live trading room and do a little, you know, of my own market thoughts posted, but also my own trade setups. And then I engage with clients and find out what they're looking at and give them my two cents. All right. So that's all across all assets. Um, but the time frame matters. I can do chases. There are a few days, maybe a few weeks. Um, swings, and by the way, that's very much, you know, exciting when you get earnings or a macro event and, you know, the market direction because of the quant stuff that I follow. But the swings are very different. They're, they're stuff I'm trying to figure out are going to last for a few weeks into maybe a few months. Trends are months to years. So those aren't really going to be as impacted. So in other words, I am trend long, swing short, and chase long because they're three totally different time frames, three totally different portfolios. So as it relates to worrying about the Bank of Japan, my advice to clients is don't panic until we have a reason to. So I honestly don't know when or if they will reverse negative rates and pivot. I am watching technically, I'm watching my intermarket, I'm watching the news, you know, all the macro stuff that matters. And, and it's complex, right? I mean, the mechanics are complex between, you know, the, the spread trade and, and how this is going to impact um, not just U.S. bonds, but globally, um, equities and all that. And, and right now, there has been no sign or lack of help by U.S. Treasury to, you know, coordinate um, dollar swaps with our friendly bank in, in Japan. So there has been a very, very concerted effort to make sure things stay stitched together. It's mostly when we do get into that situation, we're gonna see a, a situation where they try to pivot, um, potentially, gently. Uh, we get a movement, and then we have to see if it continues. In other words, it will create lower demand by Japanese investors for US bonds and US dollars, as that spread between U.S. and Japanese yields starts to tighten, if that continues to increase, right, in we get a, a further rise in the Japanese yen or Japanese yields, then that can create the unwind a little bit faster, putting more pressure on the U.S. longer end yields and in downward pressure on the dollar. So it's not one and done. It's not like you're going to miss it. <laughs> it is definitely a process. And we know what to look for. So, uh, you know, in, in, in the big picture, from a trading perspective, trend longs in U.S. equities. Um, and also, by the way, the Nikkei, their market has been doing phenomenally with um, the NASDAQ during this whole advance off of the October 22 bottom. So nothing has changed. Um, from, a, from a shorter duration, obviously, there are going to be lots of opportunities to trade shorter duration, uh, like a bond bounce right now, right, on the 10-year, or an equity advance like last week because we had intervention. So there's all types of time frames. I'm not so worried about figuring it out because I'm watching it so closely. Um, but again, I don't see a reason to panic um, yet on that, but it's absolutely um, of great interest because it will be so market moving. Do you think that the, the Bank of Japan, you know, they've 
they've been wanting inflation and now they've got inflation. And, you know, do you think we sometimes look at Japan through the Western lens of what they should do if they were us? But actually what Japan goes is sort of, you know, up yours, everyone else we will do what we want to. Do you think that, that what they might carry on doing is just going, OK, another 50 bips on yield curve control, but we're still going to do it. So you kind of have this, oh, they're doing it, but they're not really doing it. And like, like almost like we've been waiting for the recession and waiting for that the big sell off. It's just it doesn't materialize in a time frame that we can really get our teeth into. Uh, very likely. I mean, inflation is controlled um, through bond buying and, and stimulus and other man and other manner um, of, of, you know, wages not getting passed through um, by companies in Japan. They've been kind of, you know, not doing that until recently. Uh, but now they have, a, they have a shift. They have a change. There's no question. So that's a, it could be very slowly than all at once. But my point is, I'm not sure um, that we should ignore it just because it's had three year, 30 years of, of, of kind of recency bias where they've done nothing. Now they're in a situation where they're looking and talking a lot more hawkish at the same time where the rest of the world is going into pause or dovish mode, right? I mean, Fed rate cuts are surging on the potential of recession risk getting pulled forward. So it's, it's, it's a really interesting inflection point from a macro standpoint. Um, but we still have at the core inflation entrenched. If you zoom out on a, on a, you know, a 10 year, it is well above trend. We still have a lot of money in the system from lots and lots of easing, um, easy money, but also a fiscal stimulus that has right now been, uh, you know, invested poorly, not necessarily on things that are productive. But it is a, a situation where I think the 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 backdrop of concern is re is relevant. But we've had such a nice uh, stay of execution in U.S. equities because wage inflation has delayed recession. Corporations have been able to uh, maintain margins in large part despite falling revenues. That can go on for a while. So we don't yet have, but, but when jobless claims do start to trigger higher, and right now we've gone from 0.34 unemployment rate to 0.39, um, percent. We haven't even triggered the SOM rule, which is a particular kind of recession tell. Um, we haven't uninverted with the yield curve, which is another really good tell. We're getting closer, though. And the point is, that's why we're getting more nervous, right? <laughs> like, what's going on? Everyone's crowding the, 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 the mega cap tech plays, but they will not be immune. They are just right now the manifestation of the risk off because U.S. Treasuries honestly have a collateral issue, and the fiscal spending has pushed a lot of foreign buyers away. So we're, we're at a really good place for 2024 for things to turn lower. That's my baseline bet. So in terms of thinking about that, because, you know, inflection points are, you know, are very, very dangerous because we get this you, know, you, you really get the volatility around the inflection point of that first big sell-off and then often volatility as you kind of reach the final bottom um, is actually gets a lot lower. So how do, you, how do you think about that? Because obviously you've got your three timescales, but a lot of other people will just have one timescale. They might be mm -hmm. day traders, mm -hmm. traders, or they might be investors. So for instance, I see people will often say, I love the commodity story. And I go, great, but you do realize that commodities usually sell off the most into a recession, which might still be ahead of us. How are you thinking about this in terms of, let's say someone was thinking over the sort of 
multiple year time frame, so more than one year, would you say to them just be cautious right now and be in cash, or maybe not in full cash, but you know, there's, there's a decent hurdle of 5% in cash, money market funds, et cetera, which is a source of safety as well, as long as it's, you know, you do your due diligence. Do you think that's the way? Because it's difficult for a lot of people who have that slightly longer term time horizon, who are seeing some great 10 year plus opportunities, but everyone's still saying recession coming, recession coming. And since the war, every recession has had a tradable low in the equity market, which means downside ahead of us. How you, how do you navigate that? Because that's a, a very tricky kind of 12 months, 24 months ahead. I have to just say this is very, very much for active traders and investors, the conversation we're having, right? I mean, as it relates to being able to time um, an equity bounce or trounce based on you know, a bond issuance or Fed speak or Fed intervention or Fed and Treasury intervention in general, right? So we're able to kind of identify some of these triggers for selling and buying and navigate that. That's a chase and swing time frame. For those who are invested, we have, because we have a lot of intervention, it doesn't seem like there's anything wrong. Um, but at the same time, you have seen the migration, right, in risk of things breaking. You've seen the migration into that paid to wait mantra, right, where they already started picking up in speed. I mean, really, the rate of change of money that migrated out of equities and bonds into money markets and T-bills starting in September of 2022. It's November of 2023 and they haven't come back out. So th they already felt it. They already saw it. They already knew that they were going to get some, you know, high yielding safe plays uh, guaranteed and they didn't have to play the, ga you know, the game that is um, market manipulation. They just said, yep, yeah, I'm out. You know, let's 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 see if the market actually de-risks and reprices, you know, so we actually have some price discovery and we actually have some better prices that I can buy. They haven't seen it yet. They haven't come out. So they're still waiting. <laughs> and and this is I mean, this is a hard thing, is this waiting game. Because I mean I'm glad what you said earlier about how um you came into twenty twenty three without you know a, you didn't really have a good view. And I, I actually said at the beginning of this year, I said this is treacherous. I, there's so many plausible arguments that are all, all decent. One of them, some of them bullish, some of them bearish. So I, again, I was very similar. So what I've been saying, a bit like a broken record recently, is precisely because of this uncertainty. I've been saying, look, if you've had a good run, switch out into cash, um, in the money market funds. Maybe if you're worried about still having some upside, invest in a one-year call. You'll you'll get some of the upside if it happens, but you will underperform. But at least you're ready to buy the market if it comes off. So let's pretend that, let's say, you know, we, rather than try and predict this very, very treacherous um, transition from where we are today, you know, in, into potential growth shock, maybe next year. Let's say we have that growth shock. So let's say people are, you know, a bit of cash on the sideline, they're in the money market funds. Is this going to be an environment where on the other side, the US is no longer the leader and you want to be in things like commodities, emerging markets. You Japan. know the playbook. Do you think this is you know, that sort of world that we're going to go into if we can be patient and wait for that recession? You're absolutely, you know the playbook. It is the bull case is for emerging market equities and gold and select commodities. That's the, that's the bull case when the Fed starts cutting rates again. And I think this time, like I said, I think that the that whole pivot will be against a backdrop of declining dollar. So we can have higher prices in a recession. We can have 
um, you know, much higher interest rates in a recession. 1970s have proven that. We can have, as a, the declining dollar, you know, um, bull, um, supports um, emerging markets, right? A rising do dollar is absolutely trouble for emerging markets. Um, so, and gold, of course, is going to be played in both directions, but it, you know, on, on loose monetary policy, um, it likes it, but it also is is very negative on um, inflation. There are lots of reasons to old gold as a portfolio holding. So I think we'll see some uh, commodities and maybe even oil, not right now. It's coming down with lots of commodities on, on expected slowing growth. Even the uh, Middle East uh, war could not uh, keep it bid. And that is because supply disruption does not trump de demand destruction. And this has more impact, bigger picture um, than um, short-term bursts of risk premium getting priced into the commodity that is oil. So I think you're right. That, that is the playbook. And we'll be looking at it again. So it sounds like the, sort of the right way for people to, to think about positioning here is rather than you know, we all want to be the heroes and all that sort of stuff. And it's one of these ridiculous things in markets that everyone likes to sort of brag about that sort of, oh, you know, I, I did the, the um, was it the Paul Tudor Jones trade of 1987. What we should actually be doing here is, is probably being relatively risk averse um, because you know, given the size of some moves on the upside that we've had over the last, you know, uh, last, well, really since the back end of last year, Feels like that upside might be just a blow off top, but it's better just to be relatively risk averse, have a bit of cash so that when we get this slowdown, if we get this move higher in yields and eventually that rolling over, we've got something in our back pockets to go out there and go, OK, now I like where the emerging markets are now. I like you know Japan's pulled back a little bit. It was on that good run. We think it's got more to go. Do you think that's the way to do it? Are you are you sort of being cautious on that sort of view? Do you think that, for instance, I, mean, I, I still quite like energy stocks, even with the pullback we've seen relative to the broad market here, because in the last three, three four recessions, energy stocks, certainly in, in Europe, outperformed in three of the last four recessions apart from COVID. Yes. So it feels like the sort of places we can find, these are relative value trades, not absolute trades, but relative trades like that. So I have that you got, there's a lot there. Let me unpack that. So first and foremost, um, I am definitely an energy uh, bull with, from uranium and energy oil and gas companies from November 2020. And I wrote a lot about it in March of 2021. Basically, the title was Oil as an Inflation Hedge. And it has worked really well, and I don't think it's going to go away. But of course, there are going to be you know ebbs and flows and digestion and all the other stuff. But ultimately, um, I kind of fall to the, the Warren Buffett quote, I think it was. He said, I may not become super rich by owning energy, but I will stay super rich. So I love energy. I think it's uh, oil and gas select companies are undervalued relatively. So moving on, I also think Buffett was brilliant going into Japan back in the summer of 2020. Absolutely. Um, going in and taking, you know, slowly accumulating positions in the five major trading houses why? Because inflation was going to start moving higher. Uh, he did brilliant bond deals um, in yen. He absolutely nailed the bottom. It was a, it, literally Munger even gave him credit. He goes, <laughs> in the in the decades I've worked with 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 Buffett, it is one of his top three trades of all time. 
So they went in, it, it, it's still going to be there, right? So that's more viable as well as you were just talking about Japan. Um, the Buffett bet is, is doing really well, right? Um, they basically, they're uh, playing the uh, inflationary um, assets that are trading houses and banks and, and others. So, but <laughs> the 1999 blow off, people will miss and get very, very angry if they miss it. Um, we're talking more equities in the U.S. now, right? So if we do have this period right now, and I wrote about this on October 26th, I said we're at, you know, a major inflection point with uh, NASDAQ 100. It's either bounce hard or trounce hard, and we bounced. We have to follow through now, but the point is if we continue, we could get this whole, you know, parabola, you know, going, and people are going to crowd in, and, and it will lift some of the breath in other stocks, and, and the market will have this uh, wonderful advance and and folks on the sidelines will come in exactly when it starts to roll over because that's just the nature of it right but but the safer bet is what you also said kind of hang back a little bit because yeah. even though they're saying uh, yields have risen because of economic prosperity because of economic growth look at nominal gdp yes well nominal gdp um, is driven by so much government spending without it we'd be flat um, gross domestic income is flat. Um, we have, you know, PMI and, and the rest, which is still flat. So we don't have big growth happening underneath that one metric. It's a fluff kind of figure. So until we can see real strong economic growth support, support the higher yields, they're just filled up with term premium. In other words, I want more money to take on the risk of what we have likely coming, which is more bond issuance on fiscal spending and recession pulled forward. So until then, we do not have a backdrop for investing in stocks or bonds because of a macro or fundamental reason other than government intervention. So it sounds like what, what you're basically saying is beware the reflation illusion. And, and what I mean by that is we've seen this a few times over the last few years, which is you get certain asset prices moving as if you've got growth, but it's yes. actually not real growth. It's just those asset prices moving on liquidity, whatever. And people yes. go, oh, oil's gone up or these equities have gone up. Therefore, growth is coming. And actually, it was an end of year rally. And actually, the, the, then the economic growth never materialized. It was just the equity market got yes. too far one side. When the other, and that's the risk that people need to avoid here. Yes, in a nutshell, well said. Great. So, so it sounds like you know, just sort of wrapping it up. It's um, it's treacherous times still. It's very difficult <laughs> to uh, very difficult to predict. Um, be cautious. But what it does sound like, and I always like to have a little bit of an optimistic note when we're talking about the negatives. But it sounds like we're going to go into a world where there's going to be. More, more opportunities for active people, to, for people, because we've been basically for 10 years, it was buy tech stocks and buy bonds. The buy bonds is now over, apart from maybe a, a short term trade. The tech stocks hasn't quite died at that top end yet. But ultimately, what we're talking about here is selectively, there's going to be some great opportunities in emerging markets, not like the 2000s where it was buy them all because of China, but buy a few. Same with commodities. I'm guessing you're not thinking all commodities, but the energy transition commodities and those that we know there's massive scarcity versus demand. Sounds like actually, if we are sensible for the next 12 months, if we can you know, hold back, actually there's gonna be a lot of opportunity in terms of the variety of things that we can invest in. I don't know if 12 months is enough time. I think it's going to play out a little harder than folks um, may expect 
until about 2025. So in the same way that this has been, you know, two years of euphoria off the COVID lows, um, and then we've obviously gone into a, a digestion period, for lack of a better word, uh, we're either going to have a, a fake breakout, fast failure is my baseline bet in equities moving in to first quarter, um, or we're going to turn lower um, and the market gods, if you will, are going to still continue to support um, the uh, their issuance with dollar sweat spreads and intervention, whatever form that may take, so that there is no risk of real treasury uh, default and a shutdown or any of that nonsense. It's just really going to be a game of keeping the equity markets bid into an election. Um, so I don't really think we're going to have too much that's going to excite. So we either have this 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 kind of uh, euphoric move that's coming, um, or we're just going to really frustrate bulls and bears alike because they don't want it to fall too much and they don't want it to get too hot. Right? Inflation is very good uh, as it relates to um, uh, you know deflating our U.S. government debt, but it's absolutely not good for consumers long term. So I think that this is going to be a, a year of treading water, but more bearish than bullish um, just for the very means of we do not have a backdrop where we have, uh, you know, inflation retrenched, it's entrenched. We have wages rising, not falling. We have economic growth slowing. We have earnings deteriorating. So I think we may not have, unless we have an exogenous event, right, Bank of Japan, credit stress of, of some other kind, you know, it is basically, we're not going to do what the the usual excitement um, of trading equities in a backdrop of lots of fiscal spending, right? We needed that. We needed that for years. We also needed Bank of Japan. And in in controlling their 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 yield curve a, a lot of that is is starting to kind of unravel around the edges so we don't have the same advantage we don't have the same edge i think it's going to be disappointing it sounds like like going back it's the the um stock replacement get your cash get your five percent and if you're worried about the that potential move you buy your long data call whilst volatility is still kind of at okay level so not a very exciting, I keep on saying, the least exciting trade known to humanity, but, you know. <laughs> but it's better to be safe than sorry. Yeah. Well, Samantha, it's been great to have you on. Thank you very, very much indeed for your views. Um, and, you know, the, putting together that sort of, that bit of international flavor on top of the, the sort of, the, you know, everyone focuses really on, on the US for understandable reasons. But thank you for your views uh, and ideas. And uh, I'd love to get you back on so six months down the road to see if any of these predictions are, are coming true. Oh, I would love it, Roger. Like I said, I've been a fan of yours for years. Thank you for Thank you. synthesizing this whole macro backdrop and making it easily understood um, by uh, everyone who watches your videos. And I hope I added some uh, kind of perspective or, or views, unique views. And yeah, I would love to come back in six months. I wish you a, a great Brilliant. rest of the year. Fantastic. Thank you very, very much indeed. Good to see you.